Hi, and welcome to the PhD Talk podcast. I am Eva, a civil engineering professor and blogger on the side. And I'm Rico, a PhD student in civil engineering. Join us on this podcast in which we discuss all topics related to PhD life, research mechanics, and lived experiences. There will be interviews and discussions with guest researchers and PhD students. We hope you stick around with us on the PhD Talk podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the PhD Talk podcast. Today we will be interviewing Christine Streeter. She is a fifth-year PhD candidate in the School of Social Work at Carleton University in Canada. And she is a social worker who is committed to improving insecure working conditions for care workers in the social work and social services work sector. And her research as a PhD student explores the precarious work and safety at work. She also shares her PhD journey through her blog and through Instagram under the handle of Scholar Culture, where she aims to create a space for grad students to push back on the culture of overwork in academia and to bring more life to their academic lifestyle. So with this very short introduction, I wanted to, first of all, thank you very much, Christine, for joining us on the podcast today, and then ask yourself to tell us a bit more about your background career path and how you ended up doing your PhD. Yeah, for sure. Um, thanks so much for having me on today. I'm happy to be here. And um, yeah, so that's a little bit about me in a nutshell, but I guess to back it up a bit, um, my background's in social work. So I did my bachelor's of social work in London, Ontario. And when I was there in my second year, I took a research course in social work, which I actually just finished teaching in the fall. So that was like a real full circle moment for me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and it made me just realize how necessary and needed research was in the social work profession and in helping professions in general. Um, and that by carrying out research with a social justice perspective, we can actually influence social change um, for the most vulnerable populations. And so that really stuck with me and was a pivotal point for me to go in the direction of social work, um, but also to keep in mind this importance of, of social work research. And so I pursued my master's degree directly after that, and I went to Calgary, Alberta to do that. And then I worked for about five years before heading into my PhD. So I worked at a whole bunch of different jobs. My longest stints were probably at World Vision Canada for a couple of years and York University in the research division. And I was also doing a lot of research projects on the side. And so one of those projects was around youth social exclusion in relation to the labor market. And I myself was having a difficult time finding full-time secure employment with a decent wage. Um, and, you know, after five years of that, it um, becomes a little discouraging. And so I was also hearing from other people in my field, especially in the social services, having a difficult time sort of landing that type of employment. And so that led me into the interests of researching work and working conditions and care work and specifically into the social work arena. So that led me into my PhD and now I'm in my fifth year of my PhD and seven months pregnant. Um, so yeah, and I don't actually live in Ottawa. Ottawa is where my school is, but I live in Toronto um, and I just finished my data collection for my 
dissertation. So, you know, with some time off with the baby, I'll probably still have about a year to finish and write it up and, and whatnot. Well, first of all, congratulations on, on the pregnancy. I mean, we have an academic mother here in, in the chat with us today. So <laughs> so congrats on that. And also congratulations on all, all the work that you've done. And then hopefully that timeline that you have works out and Thank you don't have you. any other delays. I know that COVID has put a lot of barriers in front of people. But yeah. And so that was sort of your career path. And you told us a lot about your background. And I, I think that exclusion that you were talking about and then the workforce is something that a lot of people have experienced. But I wonder your current research and this data collection that you've done, could you tell us a little bit about that and what your work is going to focus on for your dissertation? Yeah, so um, I did change my dissertation focus a bit with the challenges of the pandemic. And so my dissertation focuses on I'm doing interviews with workers in the nonprofit social services. Um, so comparing work conditions during the pandemic, but also to pre-pandemic conditions. So, you know, since the pandemic started, like many sectors, uh, the nonprofit social service sector has been impacted heavily. And what's different about the sector is that it already relies on precariously employed, low-wage volunteer labor force of mostly women, um, especially racialized and immigrant women. So this sector already needed attention. And then to add, you know, the demands of the pandemic and the challenges of the pandemic there in just comparing the working conditions before and after. And, and the, the women that you've been interviewing that work mm -hmm. in, in social work, what jobs do they have specifically in social work? Yeah, so, and, and it's not necessarily social work because there's other folks who work in the sector who um, have come from a different background, um, like social service workers and whatnot, which is interesting as well because there's, you know, it makes for an interesting pool of people with different professional backgrounds coming to work in the same space um, with different sort of trainings and different levels of power as well. But my focus for my study is actually for folks who are working with older adults. So a lot of the people who I'm speaking with are working one-on-one -on -one with the older population, which is, again, another vulnerable population. Yeah. So whether that be more macro um, policymaking decision makers um, in those roles, or just the, you know, daily programming and connecting with older adults and getting those resources to them is what they're sort of doing in their day-to-day -day roles. So a wide range, actually. I had a question more on the methods that you're using. So you mentioned that you collected your data through interviews. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit more, first of all, about how you did the interviews and if that was affected by COVID itself? Mm -hmm. And secondly, how you will be analyzing or processing the data from the interviews? Yeah, so um, I actually was hoping to use ethnographic methods because I've been doing a lot of other research um, throughout the previous four years of my PhD using these methods and I can see you know the benefits of them in addition to interviews and whatnot but unfortunately you know I I really want to basically go to these organizations and have a sense of 
how these organizations are run and talking to everyone sort of involved in these organizations. So that had to be adapted. And, you know, I think that is ethnographic research is possible online as well, but I just didn't feel like I knew enough about it to add that to sort of jump right into that right now. Um, So I sort of stuck with interviews and I did those over Zoom. I did them both video and audio recorded. So when I'm analyzing, I'll be analyzing for both of those aspects because I'm actually also using affect theory. So emotion and affect will be really important, not only in what comes out of the audio, but also um, the video aspects. Yeah, and I might also be still trying to follow up with some folks who I interviewed through focus groups. Um, Now that I'm sort of already started to do some of the analysis, Mm -hmm. it might be just nice to member check and follow up with some of my initial findings. And so we'll see, hopefully I can get that done within the next couple months. And when you say affect, what exactly does that mean? Just forgive my ignorance. Yeah, so basically um, looking at emotion, but um, sort of like the structure of emotions. And in my work, how emotions play into work and work processes and how they impact sort of decision making, but also the organization of work and um, services that are being provided. Okay. I see here that you've recently completed a MyTax Accelerate Mm -hmm. grant. And I wonder what does that entail for those of us that aren't familiar with that grant? What sort of work did you do as part of that grant? What is that grant? And uh, could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so that grant, it was through my supervisor. So um, I wouldn't have been able to like do that basically on my own. Um, mm-hmm. So through my supervisor, we were able to submit a proposal from a larger project we were working on in terms of basically aging friendly for older adults in the community and how they're impacted by age-friendly policies. And so from that, we found, you know, we often talk to the most vulnerable, even within that population. And one of the populations that stood out were queer older adults. And so in order to do the research that we wanted and we felt like it was needed, we needed this extra grant and funding. And so we teamed up with some community organizations and put together this proposal, which I think is supposed to just be a year um, (laughs) project, but it ended up being, you know, I think two, probably two and a half years. But nonetheless, it was really great. And I was able to do interviews and focus groups um, with queer older adults, both who are using services, but also for queer workers who are working within public services in Canada and looking at their safety at work. Basically, that's just a little summary of that project. Great. Yeah. And when you say an age-friendly policy, like mm-hmm. a, or an age-friendly city, what's, what would be an example of that? Um, yeah, so there's like spe- actually specific policies out there that have like a whole bunch of things that say that encompass an age-friendly community. And so... That would be like access to transportation and access to services and housing and and things like that. I understand. Great. So let's uh, shift gears a a little bit here and talk about your blog and your use of social media under the handle of Scholar Culture. So 
before getting into the mission and the, the topics that you discuss on Scholar Culture, I wanted to ask you if you can tell us a bit more about how you use social media and your online presence. Yeah, so um, social media is so interesting these days. I feel like there's so many sort of tools that you can use, but I find myself, I guess, drawn to using blogs and Instagram and podcasts. So in order to myself, when I am putting out any contact content, that's how I also, what I gravitate towards. Twitter is, you know, I found, find a lot of good information there too but it is also very overwhelming and um and so I honestly just find myself steering away from it because I can spend you know half my day on it and um so it's something that I've sort of actually set a boundary on and just said this isn't for me at least for right now but I think you know there's so many social media tools out there and that's just something that you have to reflect on to to see what is going to be the best used for your for your own self and your work how did you get started with, with the blog and like with your social media presence how did that what sort of inspired you to do that and how did you get started with that yeah so um i was inspired to do that when i first started my phd because i did not know a lot about a phd i think i knew like one person my friend's mom who had who's actually in academia and that was about it within my circle and so i was seeking sort of advice and experience online and so and I couldn't really find a lot of that at least within like a contemporary voice and I had sort of started up a few blogs in the past and was always just drawn to that sort of creative outlet and so I thought you know why not just start to document my journey while I do my PhD and hopefully can you know have conversations with other folks who are um, in grad school and sort of sort of share experiences along the way. For those listening that are doctoral candidates who may be thinking about starting a blog or starting to be more active on Instagram, what would be your advice for them? Yeah, I think just start if that's something that you're interested in. Don't like think about it too much in terms of, you know, having it be a perfect platform or a perfect blog or putting you know a lot of money into it like a blog and instagram and or twitter or whatever social media presence you plan to be on does take a lot of time so i think also just make sure that it is something that you know you do want to commit your time to um something that you are passionate about but i think also taking a risk and learning that it's not something you're passionate about is part of that process too so i think just start you know take risks make mistakes but then just like constantly reflect on what you're enjoying and what is more of a, a task and and that's sort of how you'll learn throughout the way i think that's great advice yeah in your blog and in your uh, on your social media, you talk about uh, finding balance, and so I wonder what are your best tips for finding and, and keeping that that sort of balance in the academic sphere. Right. Yeah. I think for me, a pivotal point in my journey was around when I did my comprehensive exams, and I felt like 
I hit this point of burnout um, and it was actually a little bit before the exams, but it was something that I like pushed myself even further because I felt like I just, you know, needed to get it done and move on to the next step sort of thing. So that is why my blog and Instagram is sort of pushbacks on, on the culture of overwork in that way, not more now than um, before so that I'm putting out content that is focused on inspiration over productivity and uh, worth over work. But I think in terms of balance, I don't know that I actually believe in the concept of like work-life balance. Um, One of the things that my supervisor, Dr. Susan Bradley, says is that balance actually sets us up for failure. Mm -hmm. And that goes hand in hand with another mentor of mine, Dr. Pat Armstrong, um, says that there's work in our lives and life in our work. So I don't think that these things are very separate and actually trying to aim for this balance every day is it is setting us up for failure in a way because you know some days my life takes over and some days my work gets priority and in same within that some days when my work is getting priority it is actually something that I'm really enjoying and there's a lot of life in it and I don't necessarily see it as work. So yeah, so I actually try not to use that language of balance. And I think even knowing that sort of just already gives me that permission to actually like not find balance. And that's really freeing, to be honest, (laughs) to know that like, it's okay not to um, achieve that balance every day or every week or every month and that it's going to look very differently. So um, for me, I think it's just about remaining present in everything I do and just putting myself first and showing up, taking care of myself, um, not pushing myself and just finding things that light me up, um, whether that be within my work or within my life. And that's going to look different for everyone as well. That also looks different for different seasons in life. Exactly. Yeah. You will be embarking on a new (laughs) season very soon. Exactly. Yeah. Even from trimester to trimester so far, it's been, you know, completely different where Mm -hmm. um, so I think if I tried to achieve that balance already, it just... Um, yeah, I would just feel like I'm constantly failing. So um, it's nice to to know that I have some freedom there. Your outlook on this and this sort of concept of this work-life balance reminds me of another interview that we had early on. And the person we interviewed had the same initials as you, Christina Shenvi. I'm sure Uh Ava remembers her. And she had a similar outlook where it was, it's variable day to day. And so you need to, you know, it's, it's all sort of your life. You can't, try and separate life and work all the time. You know, you give yourself permission to work when you need to and then make time for life. And it doesn't have to be a day-to-day struggle to find time for these things. Yeah, I think even too, like I always think about, um, I used to do a lot of yoga and um, like trying to find balance in poses. Like throughout the, you know, if you go to an hour yoga session, you're not in a balanced pose for the entire hour uh you're falling in and out of those poses and that's you know part of the journey is to fall in and out of that and 
and um, embrace all of it and not necessarily, you know, try and be in this perfect balanced pose the entire time. So that's how I like to think about it. Yeah, it's a great analogy. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> I'm going to use that. Give myself permission to, to fall over sometimes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we've spoken a little bit about your outlook on balance. And I wonder, uh, as a PhD student yourself and soon to be an academic mother, I wonder if you have any advice for, for PhD students um, and what would your best piece of advice be? Yeah, it's hard to think of like just one thing. <laughs> um, or, or maybe another way to ask this question, if maybe this is incites something else, like if you had to go talk to yourself when you started this journey five years ago, what would you have given as a piece of advice to yourself? I like that. I think the main one being is that everything that I need to know is actually inside me already. Like I felt like I constantly was reaching outside for advice. And I think, you know, hearing those perspectives and having those mentors and um, hearing from other colleagues and students is really helpful. But at the end of the day, you know, I can share things that have worked for me and we can all sit here and share these strategies. But ultimately, you know what is best for you more than anyone else and sort of what direction you want to take your life and your work. And, you know, a supervisor can help shape that. And parents can have a role in that and your partner or um, friends and family. But ultimately, you know what is best um, more than anyone else. So I think just taking in that information, but letting yourself guide those decisions, that takes a lot of trust too, um, within yourself and not necessarily just relying on your supervisor to sort of set the path and tone for you, but to, you know, push back in certain areas where you want to see your trajectory going. So I think the overall piece would be that everything I already need to know is inside. But I think also a big lesson for me was just in in terms of writing and revisions and and whatnot and I think you know going into your PhD coming from like excelling in school and sort of not having you know a lot of feedback often and sort of getting pushed through school and then um, and sort of writing, you know, an essay and having it, you know, getting a good grade back and having it end there. So I think someone would have warned me about just feedback and the process of that and how it's really helpful. And that but also like the revision process of writing and how that's part of the process. And um, I think that could also have been helpful for me too <laughs> just a little bit more practically yeah yeah it's absolutely different from making a homework and and being done with it it, it morphs through many cycles yeah yeah definitely and being open to that process i think can improve your work so much too um and to come back to the first point that you mentioned on really trusting your inner voice or having that inner knowledge. I think it, it resonates very much with me as well because I I found long ago when I was doing my PhD that writing about it and journaling and really like all the reflective practices were the things that, that helped me find my path in my research and, and my career. So I, I do find that has been key in, for my research as well. So. Yeah, I love hearing that. And it's so hard to set aside time to do that, but it can be so key and actually helping you 
progress in the way that you want to. Yeah. Now, the next question that we ask all our interviewees, and we, we did already touch a bit on that, but it is how do you set boundaries to work? Yeah, boundaries are hard. And I think that I learned this again after I sort of hit my point of burnout and uh, realizing I had no other choice but to sort of step in and take care of myself. Yeah, especially as a people pleaser myself and someone who has come from the position of being in a place of precarity and not always having a secure job. And so saying no to employment even seems really scary at times. There's a lot of feelings wrapped up in in setting boundaries and saying no. So I think boundaries really take practice for sure. So I think it's been a process for me of learning how to set boundaries. And um, sometimes it doesn't always, you know, work out or I try to and it doesn't work out. And sometimes it does. And then I can see the benefits of that. So I think for me, just practicing saying no to things that don't necessarily light me up, or will put me on that path that I want to go on taking time off every week. So at least, you know, one day a week, I would ultimately like to say that I want to take, you know, weekends off completely. But it's just not what I'm like, honestly doing right now. So for me, it's the goal of one day a week. And who knows, maybe I can work my way up to two. We'll see. And just, I think boundaries too comes back to this idea of teaching people how to treat you and communicating those boundaries is really important. So like when you're sending off emails or you're getting an email, are you responding to that email right away? And if you're constantly replying to emails right away, then folks are going to expect that of you. And so setting up those boundaries, but also communicating those boundaries with folks is really helpful. So I think most people who are around me know that my best time to write and to get like that deep work done is in the mornings. So I usually take my meetings in the afternoon or calls and such with family, you know, they don't happen in the morning, but that has taken me a long time to first learn that about myself, but also then communicate that with not only colleagues, but also family and friends and then and my partner and then also setting boundaries like actually physically scheduling meetings um, later in the day and and whatnot so again all these things are baby steps um, and testing out you know what work what works and what doesn't and changing things up and going from there I think that's all good advice. And I think a lot of us uh, kind of have the same struggles as you where mm-hmm. learning how to say no and not saying yes all the time is, is sort yeah. of difficult. Yeah. You got to make room for yourself in there. And so we spoke a little bit that COVID-19 kind of changed the trajectory of your PhD. Has it changed much your your jobs and your daily tasks and your, your teaching? What, what has changed because of COVID-19 for you? Yeah, it's changed almost everything, I think. I, I've been able to teach four courses so far through my PhD. And the first one that I taught was right before the pandemic hit. And it was sort of in the middle of the when the pandemic hit. So I had to 
change it from, you know, being in person to online. So I'm glad that I was able to get almost one whole semester of that experience teaching in person, but the rest have been mm-hmm. online, which is a great experience too, but it's just different. So that's certainly impacted my work. I had to change my methods and my, I mean, my whole focus of my dissertation was completely adapted because of the pandemic. I think I would have probably stayed in Toronto to do my research. So that's sort of the same there. But I think in terms of keeping in contact with colleagues and other folks at the university, it's a lot more difficult. I would still go back to Ottawa and visit often. And so just making that effort, especially when everyone's busy and overwhelmed and tired and it's not the same to connect, you know, online. And so I think that's changed a lot too. Yeah. And then I also, we were supposed to get married during the pandemic before the pandemic hit. And, um, and then we, we ended up eloping, which was actually really awesome. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So I think it's, pretty much it impacted all areas every aspect Uh, of your life yeah last question that we always ask everybody is what does a day in the life look like for you yeah definitely different all the time but I do have like a typical day that I try to follow and see what happens I'm an early bird so I like to wake up early and enjoy my mornings. I usually wake up around six and it's also my husband's the opposite of me. So it's a time where I can also just have some quiet time, (laughs) which is nice. (laughs) So I usually will meditate or journal or read or go for a walk or do something that like I just want to do that I would would take me away from my work during the day because I've, I'm craving it. And so I make sure to start my day off with something that I actually want to do. So doing something for me and moving my body usually too just wakes me up. And then I usually start my day around nine. I like to check my emails right away. Another boundary is checking emails right away and then shutting it off and then closing off my emails until noon to check it again. But that way I sort of have from nine till noon to do my deep work, the most difficult work that I sort of have planned for that day um, or the tasks that I really want to get done. So that usually involves, you know, my writing or analysis um, or creating my lecture mm-hmm. uh, for that week and then taking a break at lunch. Um, so making sure that I do take that break. It's hard when you check your email and then there is like a, tons of emails in your inbox it can take you away from that. And so if I had better boundaries, I'd probably check it after after my lunch, but again, maybe something to work on. And then, yeah, just getting back to, back to work after that. But that's when I usually like to take my meetings because by that point, things have come up through email and I've done my deeper work and it feels like things are just a little bit crazier than how my day started. (laughs) 
but also just getting, you know, some of those other tasks done. And I like to end the day by getting outside, going for a walk or whether that be at lunch or both. Yeah. So I like to still have a sort of nine to five or nine to six day, I guess. But that's just also because that's what uh, works for me. I'm not, I don't do very well with writing at night. <laughs> so mm-hmm. at least for now, but I think I'll probably have to get used to that later on when the baby comes. <laughs> Yeah, great. Thank you so much for for sharing with us. It's been uh, been a pleasure having you on the podcast. I think you gave our, myself and our listeners and Ava as well some interesting perspectives to think about. And so, thank you so so much. Yeah, it's been lovely to be on, and yeah, it's just my one perspective and my own experience of of this PhD journey so far. And yeah, hopefully it can help some folks. And we'll link to all your social media, your blog and all that in the show notes so people can find you if they want to hear more from you, which I think they should. Sounds great. So thank you all for listening. We interviewed Christine Streeter on her PhD, her use of social media, on how to combine the different facets of life and uh, her best advice for PhD candidates. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and we will be back later with more on PhD life and research mechanics.